That's Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Please do sit down. And at this point, if uh, you would like a simpler English uh, study, uh, please do join the group who will uh, leave from the back of church now. If you'd prefer a simple English explanation of tonight's passage, then why don't you join the the group uh, as they leave And if you're going to stay, perhaps you'd like to open your Bibles again to that Bible reading in Romans chapter 2, page 1129, I think it was. Romans chapter 2 and verses 1 to 16. It seems to me that uh, human beings have an extraordinary capacity for taking comfort from other people's wickedness. Have you ever noticed that? It makes us feel better when we hear how bad somebody else is. Uh, The story is told of a a couple of um, brothers who were gangsters. And uh, one of them died. And uh, the other went to the local vicar to uh, get him to do the funeral for his dead brother. And he explained to the vicar that uh, he wanted the vicar to uh, do a nice funeral for his brother and say a few nice things about his brother. And if he did, that he'd be very generous. In fact, he'd give a million pounds to the church uh, and so on. Well, the vicar was in a bit of a dilemma here because a million pounds would really help. They could, you know, do the roof for the Sunday school and they could um, give some money to charity and it would be very helpful for the church finances. But what on earth was he to say about this dead gangster who was a complete scoundrel? 
But anyway, he racked his brains, and the day the funeral came, and everybody was gathered, and, and as they, the, the, the time for the talk came, there was the, the brother sitting there scowling at him from the front. He thought, well, you know, he started off, he said, well, um, he said, to be honest, Tony was a lying, thieving, murderous cheat. You could hear, the, let's see the eyes of the, the brother boring into his soul. He said, but compared with his brother here, he was a complete angel. Now, sometimes I think we have that attitude, don't we, towards the bad news, the things we hear about other people. When you listen to the London Tonight News uh, every night and you hear about all the murders that have happened around London, when you read the daily papers and you read about the, the rape and the murder and pillage that goes on elsewhere, it's kind of reassuring. You, you know, you can tut-tut at what everyone else is up to, but it makes you feel rather superior. And so we can comfort ourselves with the thought that we're really good people and God must be quite pleased with us. But, of course, he must be really fed up with all those dreadful people in live, who live in those other parts. Now, in this passage that's just been read, the Apostle Paul talks to people like us. He calls us in verse 1, you who pass judgment on someone else. You see, many of us here may be moral people. And Paul was writing about moral people, in particular Jews, but also other religious people, and people who take comfort from their own behavior by comparing themselves with other people. See, generally there is a tendency to condemn the sin of others and to excuse ourselves. And the Apostle Paul will explain in this passage that that's a bit like a driver who's hauled over to the side for speeding by a, by a policeman, and uh, the policeman says, you're nicked, you're doing 95 miles an hour. And the driver says, but officer, officer, I just saw a, BM, a BMW driving down, down the road at 105 miles an hour. Go and get him. He's much more guilty. To which, of course, the policeman will say, that may be so, but you're still guilty. You've been speeding. And that's what this passage uh, is all about. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans to explain the gospel of God to the Christians in Rome. In the middle first century, probably writing from Corinth, he intends to go via Jerusalem and then go on to Rome and then to Spain. And so he writes to the Christians in Rome who he's never met before to explain the gospel of God so as to unite the Christians in Rome, Jew and Gentile, to unite them together and to recruit their support for his mission to Spain and Western Europe. Therefore, he needs to explain to them what the gospel of God is and why the whole world needs it. If you've been with us over recent weeks, you'll know that uh, in chapter 1, the first 17 verses, he introduces this gospel. He basically says that the gospel of God is all about the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that it is the power of God for salvation because it reveals the righteousness of God that we all need. But in the section we're studying at the moment, between chapter 118 through to chapter 3, verse 20, he explains why the world needs the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And to sum it all up, it basically, basically says, because we're under the wrath of God. The gospel of God, all about the Son of God, is the power of God to save us because it reveals the righteousness of God, that all who are under the wrath of God desperately need. And so in this passage, he explains by why people who think of themselves as morally superior need the righteousness of God as much as anyone else.
Three simple things from the passage. And first, verses 1 to 5, is simply that enjoying God's kindness is no excuse. Enjoying God's kindness is no excuse. You see, uh, moral people, such as the Jews, easily conclude that being less sinful than some other people and being more privileged than many means that we're immune from judgment. But in these verses, Paul explains that actually God's kindness to us increases our guilt. Look at verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. See, this is um, the hypocrisy of moralism, isn't it? That uh, just like the Jews, we can tend to think that just because we are morally well-behaved, that therefore we're immune from God's judgment. But the apostle says, look, many of the things that you do wrong, you do secretly. Many of the things that we do wrong, uh, we do in fantasy. Many of the things that we do wrong, we know are wrong. And so, in fact, we are increased in our guilt. In verses 2 to 4, without repentance, you're showing your contempt for God's kindness. Look at verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Like the Jews, you see, we can rely upon God's kindness to us and think that, therefore, there's no problem between us and God. Maybe his kindness to us in the blessings of this life. But life is so good. I've just started a new university. I've just got, I've got a great job. I've got lots of friends. God must be pleased with me because life is so comfortable. No, no, says Paul, that's God's kindness. Don't think that there is no problem between you and God just because God is kind. But he's so tolerant. I mean, the things I've done wrong, I mean, nobody seems to know about. No, says Paul. Don't confuse his tolerance. He knows everything that's gone on. Yes, but, but nothing seems to have happened. Nothing's gone wrong. I seem to have got away with it. No, says Paul. Don't confuse his patience with the fact that you are guilty before God. Then verse 5, he says, look, you're storing up wrath against yourself. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The Jews had a, had a phrase where they, they thought that they were storing up rewards for all the good things that they did. And we can think like that, can't we? That, you know, an act of kindness here, uh, you know, remember to call somebody there and, and not being too, too bad the other day, that somehow we're kind of storing up wrath, uh, rewards, we're saving up good things. And, and when we get to heaven, God will be so pleased to see us. He'll feel so privileged to have us with him because we've stored up so many good things. And Paul says, no, it's the opposite way. Day after day, month after month and year and decade after decade, you're storing up, yeah, you're saving up the wrath of God for the way we treat God and the way we treat one another, we're actually storing up his wrath. See, the Jews tended to think that they were storing up all these rewards, but actually there was wrath awaiting them one day. So it's a bit like the, the, you know, the moral man who's, who's pulled over in his motor car for speeding down the motorway, and he says to the officer, you know, why are you bothering with me? 
You know, just because I've had a few drinks and I'm driving a bit fast, why, why don't you go and deal with those scum who live in Brixton? You know, go and deal with them. I mean, they're always breaking the law. They take drugs all the time. They carry dangerous weapons. Why don't you go and deal with them? Why are you bother with people like me? Of course, the, the policeman might well say to us, well, actually, you're breaking the law. You've been drinking a drug. You're driving a dangerous weapon. Actually, you're just as guilty as they are, just in a different way. See, the apostle is saying here, look, enjoying God's kindness is no excuse. Don't think of yourself as better than everybody else and take comfort from it. Our comforts will actually only make us more guilty. Enjoying God's kindness is no excuse. Don't think that because life is good that there is no problem with God. Okay, but secondly, verses 6 to 11, what about the fact that we're one of God's people? Well, Paul says that being God's people is no excuse. Look at verses 6 to 11. Verse 6, God will give to each person according to what he has done. Now, that's absolutely fair, isn't it? And that's absolutely right, that God should assess our lives according to what we've done, not according to what race we were born into, not according to what background we come from, but from how we've actually lived. People walking up and down a Piccadilly outside, they would say that's completely fair. God should assess our lives in accordance with how we've actually lived. But of course, moral people, like the Jews, and perhaps like some of us here, think of ourselves as the spiritual elite. You know, we're part of God's people. I mean, God surely is very pleased with us. How could he be upset with us? Doesn't he know who we are? And the apostle is saying, no, it's not about what people you belong to. It's about what life you've lived. And then he says, verse 7, something which might be quite surprising to us. He says, basically, God, good people get eternal life. Now, if you've been to uh, Christian churches before, you may know that's quite a surprising thing to say. But he says it there in verse 7. Good people get eternal life. Look at verse 7. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. He says it there. If you do good, you get eternal life. That's absolutely right. Everybody agrees with that, don't they? The people walking up and down outside particularly would agree with that, wouldn't they? If, if you're a good person, you should get heaven. And if you're a bad person, you shouldn't. And that's what the Apostle Paul says here. And then in verse 8, the other side of it. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. So bad people get punishment. That seems fair and right for a good and righteous and holy God who cares about the way we live, who cares about the way we treat him, who cares about the way we treat everybody else. That's absolutely right. If we're self-seeking, the word there is a word for selfish ambition. If we're characterized by self-promotion and selfishness. Uh, if we're uh, characterized uh, by... Um, Rejecting the truth about God. If we, we try to ignore what the Bible says, if we keep telling God to get out of the way so we can live our lives the way we want to. If we're living our lives following evil. You know, if we're, if we're into being envious or lustful or proud. That's quite right that God should punish us, isn't it? That's quite a shock for us, you see. Because we thought that somehow just depending on which people you belong to, that kind of gets you into heaven. And the Apostle Paul is saying that God, that wouldn't be fair. You see, God doesn't show favoritism. You see, if you do good, you can go to heaven. If you do bad, 
you should face punishment. Of course, the trouble is when you start thinking, well, which category do we belong to? In fact, the more you think about that, the more terrifying it is. The trouble is we're not good people. We do evil just like everybody else. And it's no point saying, yes, but I come from a religious background. I'm part of a religious people. That makes no difference. It's like the driver being pulled over to the side of the road and as the officer says, you're nicked, 95 miles an hour, you're, you, you know, you're going to lose your license. He starts saying, well, don't you know who I am? I am the president of the South of England Automobile Club. To which the policeman is going to say, I don't care if you're the, the Queen Mother. You know, I, mean, I don't care at all who you are. The fact is you're driving at 95 miles an hour and you're guilty and you're nicked. So you see, being God's people is no excuse. Enjoying God's kindness is no excuse. Being God's people is no excuse. Thirdly, hearing God's law is no excuse, verses 12 to 16. You see, moral people like Jews tend to take comfort from their moral knowledge. You see, and we could be like that too, can't we? Yes, but I know a lot about God, whereas those other people know nothing about him. So the Jews took great pride in the fact that, uh, you know, they had the law of God. They had the Old Testament. And they could look at the nations out there and feel superior. And we can be just like that ourselves. Yes, but I can quote Romans. You know, I, I know the theme of Romans. I know it's all about the gospel of God. The people out there don't know what the Bible says, but, but I do. And the apostle says, that's no excuse, whatever. Look at verse uh, uh, 12. All who sin apart from the law that's Gentiles, will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. See, it's not hearing the word of God, it's whether you obey it that matters. Do you think God cares tuppence that you know what Romans is about? Do you think he cares that we can quote the Bible back, back to front, in Greek and in Hebrew and the bits in Aramaic as well? See, knowing what the Bible says is no excuse. The question is, do we actually live by it? A righteous God requires us to be righteous if we're to live with him. And knowing the Bible is no excuse. In fact, verse 14, indeed, when Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves even though they don't have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. That is to say that even people who don't have the law of God in the Bible have consciences. God has given us the ability to know right from wrong. And so you can go all over the world, you can speak to people of every nation, every background. And although people have slightly different cultural emphases, nevertheless, most people everywhere in the world know that to kill other people is wrong, that adultery is wrong, that thieving or lying is wrong. And so, you see, we stand condemned. If we know the, the, the law of the Bible, we're condemned by the law of the Bible. If we don't know the law of the Bible, we're condemned by the law of our hearts. And so he comes to verse 16, and what a shock it is. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. The day is coming, says the apostle, when everybody who has ever lived will stand before Jesus Christ to be judged. So even if we've died, we'll be raised from our graves and we'll all stand one by one before the Lord Jesus 
to explain ourselves to him. That's a very, very terrifying moment when it's my turn and I have to stand before the living Lord Jesus Christ and he looks at my life. Because, you see, he's not going to just judge what I look like, you know, as a kind of vicar. He's going to judge the secrets, all the things of which I'm deeply ashamed. Now, of course, that's pretty appalling, isn't it? Because after me, it's your turn. And you'll stand before Jesus Christ. And all the secrets will be made obvious. So all those things that we, we did on our own, we thought that nobody knew. All those things that happened a long, long time ago, and we thought that everybody had forgotten. All those things that nothing very bad happened, and so we thought we got away with. I'm afraid we haven't got away with anything. Nothing is forgotten. Nothing is unseen. Everything will be made obvious before the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not just embarrassing, which is to have our image rather shattered. That is really terrifying. Because we'll have to face punishment. So you see, we're in serious trouble. We're in really serious trouble. Why does the apostle say that this is part of his gospel? Do you see it there? He does say in verse 16 that this judgment day is part of the gospel message. Can I just urge you to look at that in verse 16? Does it say in your Bible what it says in mine? This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. That is the gospel of the apostles. The gospel of the apostles of Christ declares that judgment is coming. And when you think about it, of course, we have to know that. You see, we have to know that there is a terrible day of judgment coming if we all want to have the salvation that is available in Jesus Christ. We have to know what the problem is if we're to look for the solution. It's no good just, just hearing lies about how marvellous everything is if, in fact, a day of wrath is coming. And so, you see, although it's painful to hear that we're in trouble with God, actually it's a very kind thing of God to tell us. He's warned us in advance that judgment is coming because in his great love he's provided the solution in Jesus Christ. It's like going to the doctors, isn't it? If you go to the doctor, you don't want a doctor who only tells you good news. If you have a doctor like that, go to another one. You don't want a doctor who just tells you nice things all the time. What do you want? You want a doctor who tells you the truth. Because if you're sick, you need to know so that you can get the cure. And so you see, God is being kind to us this evening by warning us that the day of wrath is coming one day and each one of us will one day stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he'll judge our lives. But praise him that we've heard about it tonight. And not when we face him. And he's, he's told us about it tonight. Because there is a cure. There is a cure to the problem of the wrath of God. Once we see that we're in serious trouble with God. Because the way we've lived stands under his judgment. We have done evil. And we have no excuse. You see, we have no excuse. Even though we've had a moral background. Enjoying God's kindness in this life, living in this comfort, with all the middle class comforts of London, it is no defense. Because God will judge the way we've lived. Being part of God's people is no defense. Knowing God's law is no defense. The question is, how have we lived? For if we've done evil, 
we're going to hell. But the apostle writes this, and he'll go on in a couple of chapters to explain. Praise be to God. That's why God sent Jesus. Let me explain. I've got a couple of um, videos here. Um, on Judgment Day, when the video of my life is, is um, played, I've got to this video here, which is called Reptile, which seems rather um, uh, appropriate. Here is the video of my life, and on it are all the thoughts and words and deeds that I have ever done. You think that because I'm a vicar, it's really good. I'm afraid I have to tell you it is not. It is utterly appalling. I'm just being honest here. And that is not a very happy video. I don't want you to see it, but one day it'll be obvious. Shouted from the rooftops, said Jesus. And you'll know the truth. And of course, after mine, it's yours. Here is another video, and uh, this is the video of Jesus' life. All the wonderful things that he did. It's called It's a Wonderful Life. (laughs) And that is the record of Jesus' beautiful life. You can read um, a lot about it in the Gospels. So here's my dreadful life, and here is Jesus' wonderful life. The reason that God became man, an ordinary man, just like us, was in order to swap places with us on the cross. And on the cross, what happened was that he swapped places. And there on the cross, he was treated as if he was me and punished for my reptile life. He was punished on the cross for all the wrong that I've ever done and will ever do again. And do you know why? Because he loves us. He loves us so passionately that he came to earth to take what we deserve upon himself to suffer the punishment that should justly be ours so that if we come to him, we will never have to face it ourselves. And the other side of the swap is that therefore I am treated as if I was Jesus with a wonderful life full of gloriously kind and lovely and beautiful things. And I am acceptable to God in his righteousness, in his life, because I've come to Jesus. So the Apostle Paul, you see, is explaining to us that all of us is facing the wrath of God so that we will understand that Jesus came to be our sacrifice, to take our place and there on that cross to suffer for the evil that we do so that we might be saved in the righteousness of Christ made available to any who believe in him. So the question is, how do you want to face the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you want to kind of do it yourself? Carry on? Pretend that everything's fine? Yeah? Do you want to just front up to the Lord Jesus and say, oh, I think I'm all right, you should let me in? Or do you want to arrive in front of the Lord Jesus Christ, clothed in his righteousness, acceptable in what he has done for you on the cross? Well, as for me, I've got no prayer but the righteousness of Jesus. And I'd love to hear from you if you've got a better idea is how are you going to survive the judgment of Christ? Can I urge you then tonight, if you've not yet done that, if you've not yet come to the Lord Jesus Christ and asked that his death count for you and his righteousness count for you, why not do it tonight? Why not turn to him and ask Jesus Christ to be your saviour? I'm going to pray a prayer now that you might like to um, pray 
so that you can do that for the first time if you've never done it before. Let's bow our heads and be quiet for a moment. And let's think about how we're going to manage on the day of judgment when we stand before Jesus Christ. Let me lead us in a prayer. Dear God, thank you that you love us so much that you've warned us that we are all guilty. And that even if we have a moral or religious upbringing, that we have no excuse. Thank you for explaining that your kindness to us is no excuse and that we should not think that because life is good that there is no problem. Thank you for reminding us that whichever people or family we're born into is no excuse. That you will judge fairly by how we've lived. Thank you for warning us that hearing God's law is no excuse. Knowing the Bible and going to church and hearing sermons will be no excuse. For if we've done evil, we are guilty before you. Father, help us to hear this for ourselves. How we praise and thank you for sending Jesus to swap places with us on the cross. Please, Lord Jesus, would you hear our prayer tonight? Would you give us your righteousness? We don't want to trust in our own lives, but in yours. We cannot survive judgment on our own. Please, Lord Jesus. May your righteousness be ours. Help us to trust in you and in you alone for our salvation. For we ask it for your glory. Amen. Now, I wonder if there are any questions that people have um, about the passage or about anything that I've said. If you have any questions about what I've said or uh, any comments to make, or any prophetic insight into how this passage applies to us, uh, you're very welcome to contribute that. Uh, so has anybody got any questions? Yeah. Thank you. If I've understood the question... Uh, even when we've put our faith in Christ and we know that we're now dependent upon his life rather than our own, is Romans going to go on to talk about how we can turn our own lives around? Yes, I think you probably know Romans will go on to explain how we therefore live while we wait to be with God uh, in heaven. Um, it's not that we now live uh, so as to become righteous to save ourselves. So lots of people, if you've been brought up in uh, a religious background, or a Roman Catholic background, for example, um, you might think that uh, you need help from God to improve and to become righteous enough so as to qualify for heaven and not spend time in purgatory or whatever. And that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that if we think that by improving ourselves we'll become good enough to pass judgment, forget it. Uh, we have no excuse. We are without hope because we cannot stop the evil that's in us. 
So we do need to, to realize, to recognize that we can't do it ourselves and to trust in Christ instead of ourselves. So we rely upon him for our salvation. And we need to get that clear, that his righteousness, his righteous life, is what we need. Okay, and that's what the gospel reveals, is the righteousness that we all need. Now having said that, in response to that wonderful kindness, in response to God giving us Christ to be our saviour, to die for our sins and to live our life of righteousness. In response to that, we want to live for him. And uh, when you become a Christian, when you start putting your faith in Christ for salvation, um, yes, in response to that, you begin to tackle the sins in our lives. And um, there is power from God's Spirit to help us fight with those sins in order to become more like Jesus. But we do that not in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. And indeed, as we go on, sometimes, of course, you despair. The apostle uh, despairs in chapter 7 that it's so hard, and sometimes, you know, the good we want to do, we just can't do because our sinful natures remain. And he ends, and that's our triumphant note. Who will rescue me from this wretched life? The answer is, the Lord Jesus Christ will. Now, does that answer your question, or was that just another sermon? Was that clearer? A little bit clearer? Yeah, read on in Romans. It will become clear from chapter 6 onwards. Yeah. Yeah, Jim. Yes, the question is, um, have I misunderstood something or am I saying that I'm still fearful of um, um, a day of public exposure? Um, the Apostle Paul writes elsewhere that we do know what it is to fear the Lord as Christians. Uh, but it is a different fear now uh, once you've turned to Christ. But there is a day when our sin will be made clear. But if we've, been trusted, in, if we've trusted in Christ, then um, uh, his salvation uh, applies to us. Now, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, the apostle actually says that, that we know what it is to fear the Lord because we should all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He's speaking of us as Christians. But it's not the terror of somebody who's unforgiven. While we remain unforgiven, facing the Lord Jesus on Judgment Day is a terrifying prospect because we're entering into an eternity, into an eternity without God's blessing. And Jesus described that uh, situation as hell, as being a dreadful place. He said it's so dreadful, it's like being roasted alive. It's like being infested with worms forever and ever and ever. It's a dreadful experience. He said, don't do that. Don't go there. So there's the terror of facing his judgment unforgiven. But then there is the fear, the reverence of the fact that we shall one day stand before Jesus in his blazing glory. But although he says that our sins will be published from the, the rooftops, at the same time, we will clearly be so engulfed with the joy of his sacrifice and his salvation that our sin will only increase the sense of gratitude to him. So I, I think... You know, it doesn't make sense, for example, in heaven to be praising Jesus for dying for our sins if we don't know what they were. If we don't know, you know, what does it mean if you say, um, you know, we praise the lamb who was slain. Oh, what for? Why did Jesus die? No idea. Anybody else know? No idea. You know, there has to be some sense to what he's done for us. So I, I take it that we're aware of what we've done wrong. We'll not just be embarrassed as if our pride has been shaken. We'll actually hate what we did. 
we'll realize how horrible we've lived. But that sense of horror will be engulfed with joy and gratitude and praise that the Lord Jesus should save people like us. And when we fully see what we've done in all its horror and all its uh, disgustingness, to realize that God has taken us and brought us into his family from the, from the gutter to the throne room of heaven, I think we'll just be so engulfed with praise and thankfulness. And we'll all be in the same situation. That the center of attention will not be the past and what we did wrong, but the future and living with Christ forever and to live for him in joy and praise. I think that's probably the way I'd put that. Anybody else want to add to that? Yeah. Hugh? Yep. Yep. Yes, um, uh, and you're as much an expert in this as, as, as me, Hugh. Um, thank you for helping, giving me the opportunity to explain that this passage is not implying that because Gentiles are aware of right and wrong, therefore somehow they're all right. Paul is explaining, remember, why he desperately needs to take the message of Christ to Spain and to Europe. And um, the reason he's explaining these in those chapters is that even people who've never heard of Jesus and therefore cannot be held guilty of rejecting Jesus because they've never heard of him are nevertheless guilty of rejecting God and everyone is aware of God from creation. We saw that last week and earlier in chapter 1. So people of all nations everywhere know that there's a God. People of all nations everywhere know about right and wrong. The trouble is they're just like us. The human condition is common. You see, we're all in the same condition. In our different cultures, we all do evil. We mustn't have this kind of naive view that somehow if you live in a mud hut, you're angelic. It simply isn't true that the human condition is common to us all. And in different languages and different stages of history, we've all treated God the same way. And so we reject the knowledge of God. See, we reject that knowledge of God and we do evil. And therefore, we're guilty before God. So even if we've never heard of Christ and cannot be condemned for rejecting Christ, we can be condemned and we are guilty of rejecting God. That's why the whole world needs to hear about Jesus, because everyone is evil. And he'll go on to say that next week. We'll see his, his uh, bone-rattling conclusion that no one is righteous. We all need the righteousness of Christ. And that's why he must take the gospel to Spain. And that's why we must preach the gospel to all nations who will listen. Because without Christ, we don't have the righteousness we need. Does that make, is that clearer? Thanks, Hugh.